All right, well, let's gather back. We're going to uh, transition the children to their experience. Any uh, kindergarten through fifth graders who would like to go to an experience for the next half an hour, that is tailored to them. Looks like uh, Miss Jan is going to be taking them, so uh, you can follow her, and uh, that will be a great experience for them. Well, the children do that. Let's uh, pray together. I think we've been praying the Lord's Prayer. Uh, of course, this is a prayer that Jesus Christ taught us, uh, both as a way to come closer to God, but also as a way to teach us how to pray. So uh, let's pray that prayer together. Uh, this is from the Common English Bible, so please read it as it's on the screen, uh, as it may be a little different if you learned it growing up. Let's pray together now. Our Father who is in heaven, uphold the holiness of your name, bring in your kingdom, so that your will is done on earth as it's done in heaven. Give us the bread we need for today. Forgive us for the ways we have wronged you, just as we also forgive those who have wronged us. And don't lead us into temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Amen. Well, we continue our look at crazy love today. Uh, I do have a couple books available if uh, you are interested and don't have one yet. You can come see me after church. Last week we learned, as we started this study, that we worship a truly awesome and magnificent God. God who created 350 billion galaxies. The same God who created millions of different types of animals and plants. And the same God who created each of us with over 50 trillion cells in our bodies. That's a pretty big God. But that same God, that God who created the heavens and the earth, loves us with a crazy love. He loves you. He loves me. That love was ultimately expressed in becoming one of us, in living, dying, and rising again in Jesus Christ. How do we respond to that kind of love? And that's what we're going to talk about today and really what we're going to talk about for the rest of this Lenten season. Jesus gave his followers... Um, a parable, actually, he gave him them lots of parables, but he gave them one in particular that kind of demonstrates how one might respond when faced with this crazy, amazing love that God has for us. So we're going to watch a kind of modern telling of the parable of the hidden treasure. So let's watch that now, uh, and we can maybe see how we should respond to God's love.
Jesus says to the people who are hearing that parable that a man finds a treasure hidden in a field and he sells everything to buy that field. That little video elaborates on what that might mean for you and me. What that might mean if we were asked to give up everything in response to God's love. So think about that as we're talking today about lukewarm Christianity, which we'll get to in a second. What would you give up to have life with Christ? What would you give up to have life with God? What would you give up to find and hold on to that treasure, which is being an heir or a child in God's kingdom? Well, we need to talk about some things that have happened before we get to our uh, 2012. And a little bit about that is the history of our church. There have been people who have been called Christ followers uh, earlier than being called Christians. They were called followers of the way for about 1988 years, give or take a few years, depending on when you believe Jesus was born. <clears throat> they began to be called Christians several decades after Jesus died. Those early years were great years for the church. The first years of Christianity were amazing years. The Jewish authorities didn't want to be associated with Christians, so they decided to persecute, arrest, and even kill people who called themselves followers of the way. Christians wouldn't pay homage or taxes to Rome or pretend that uh, or pay homage to Rome's emperor as a god, which was required to be a Roman citizen. And so the Romans persecuted and arrested and killed Christians in droves and in some rather unpleasant ways. That went on for several hundred years, and those were good times. The church flourished in those years. To be called a Christian meant you lived with the constant fear of death. But the early Christians, our uh, forefathers and mothers of the church, were willing to sacrifice their mortal lives because the treasure that they had found was worth everything. Fast forward a couple hundred years, and around 325 A.D., a young man named Constantine decided that it wasn't good enough that he have a quarter of the Roman Empire, because at that time the Roman Empire had been split up into four sections, he decided he wanted to control the entire Roman Empire, or at least in that area, the entire known world. And so one by one, and it's a great story uh, that you can read on Wikipedia, or in the, uh, there's a great book called Constantine's Sword, uh, just wonderfully illustrates this uh, story of kind of intrigue and murder and all that kind of stuff in ancient Rome. And he went one by one, destroying the other emperors, the other Caesars, and in one last-ditch effort, after he had uh, basically taken charge of the rest of the empire, he stormed Rome. He stormed the gates of Rome, something that had not been done for hundreds of years. Now, Constantine's mother was a Christian, and before he stormed the gates of Rome with a small army, he had a vision, a vision of Christ. And he converted, or so he says, to Christianity. He did some pretty bad things after that, so we're not really sure when he converted. But he believed after he became the Grand Emperor of Rome, the uh, Holy Emperor of Rome, he declared that it would be great if everybody could be Christians. 
But Constantine was a smart and clever man. So instead of saying, everyone now has to be Christian or they will die, he said, how about this? If you become Christian, if you become baptized and claim Jesus Christ as Lord, I'm going to give you sweet tax breaks. Well, guess, yeah. guess what happened? Everybody became Christian. And that's kind of the downturn of the passionate, giving up our lives, Christianity that we once had in those early years. Because at that point, around 325, it became okay to be Christian. We started to build grand cathedrals. Constantine's mother was responsible for building some of the eldest uh, and most ancient cathedrals that live today in our Christian heritage. Uh, earlier in the, uh, or I guess later in last year, we saw some of those churches, the Church of the Nativity, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, beautiful, beautiful churches that Constantine's mother is attributed to building. And so it became okay to be Christian. Now fast forward uh, a couple millennium and the church has grown. The church has flourished. The church is in every nation, in every country, on every continent. People know of Jesus Christ. Yes, in the last 60 years, uh, the number of Christians in America has dwindled, but we have churches that worship tens of thousands every weekend. Just down the road, about an hour, we have a church that worships 25,000. And despite all of that, despite the fact that there are 400 Methodist churches in northern Illinois, let alone, uh, you know, uh, four or five hundred Baptist churches and five, six hundred Lutheran churches and how many hundreds of non-denominational churches, thousands of churches just in our immediate area. Despite all that, Christ's kingdom has not been fulfilled. God's kingdom has not been realized on earth. And so why is that? What has changed since those early years? What has changed since people were willing to literally go into the arena and die for their faith? Well, it didn't take long before the church started having problems. And you can read in the book of Acts, there's all kinds of wonderful stories of the early church and the problems they had. Because anytime you get a group of people together, there are likely to be issues. But I want to read you a section from the book of Revelations. We forget that Revelations isn't all about scary stories. There are actually some uh, messages to the early churches. And here in the third chapter of Revelation, if you have your Bible with you, it's the very last book of the Bible. The third chapter of Revelation, the 15th verse is where I'm going to start. I think it's going to be on the screen too. This is what the, uh, this is what the Lord, this is what God is saying to the church in uh, Lodicea. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were hot or cold. So, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore, I counsel you, to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may be rich, and white garments to clothe you, to keep your shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to announce your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and chasten, so be zealous and repent. The revelation of John was written about 100 A.D., just a few decades after Christ died. 
And even in that short amount of time, there were people calling themselves Christians who were not living up to the expectation that Christ had for them. They were not fully realizing their Christianity. They were not fully realizing life with God and new life through Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do now is we're going to read a lot of Scripture, and we're going to try to come up with a profile of what the uh, Revelation of John calls a lukewarm Christian. We all, uh, those of us who consider ourselves uh, Christians, we all hope that we are hot, that we are on fire for God, but we need to check ourselves and try to think what are some of these characteristics that may show us throughout Scripture what a lukewarm Christian is. All right, you may not like what I'm going to say here in the next few minutes, but just bear with me. The lukewarm Christian goes to church, except when it's snowed in the morning. Um, that wasn't very nice of me. Lukewarm Christians attend church regularly. It's what is expected of them, and it's what good Christians do. Isaiah 29 says, They will come near to me with their mouth, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. A lukewarm Christian gives money. Lukewarm Christians give money to the church and to charity so long as it doesn't affect their standard of living. Jesus says in Luke 21, or Jesus sees a rich man in Luke 21 putting their gifts into the temple treasury. But he also saw a poor widow who put two very small copper coins in. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this widow has put in more than all others. The rich gave out of their wealth. She gave out of her poverty all that she had. Lukewarm Christians follow the crowd. They want to do what is popular, and they want to be popular in both the secular and religious circles that they're in, inside and outside of the church. Luke, we were talking about this uh, just before church. Luke 6.26 says, Woe to you, when people speak well of you. So I was telling people not to speak well of them. Something to think about. Lukewarm Christians dodge the bullet. Lukewarm Christians want to be saved from their sin because of the fear of hell that they have on their hearts. They're not necessarily truly sorry over their sins, nor do they seek to sin no more, as Scripture says. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it in its fullness or have it in the full. There's all kinds of different translations of that, but I just love that passage. To have life and have it in its abundance. Jesus did not come to bring us new life a little bit. He came to bring us life with God in its fullness. Lukewarm Christians are moved by the radical. They may experience uh, just a powerful feeling uh, and just a, just a movement in their hearts when they hear stories of Christians acting in radical ways. They may even share those stories with others, but they, don't, they are not willing to change their own lives. They may believe that these stories are the rare exception, the, uh, something that just a few people can do. James says in his letter, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins against God. 
Lukewarm Christians are privately religious. They do not believe that it is polite to talk about religion or share their religious views or uh, kind of come out of their shell and share with other people their life in Jesus Christ. Jesus says these words, and they are not flattering. Whoever acknowledges me before me, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. That's one of those keeping you up at night kind of passages. Lukewarm Christians are comparatively good. They judge their lives by the lives of others, by the actions of others, by what others do. They are okay as long as they're a little bit better than the rest. Luke says, all who lift themselves up will be brought low, and those who make themselves low will be lifted up. Lukewarm Christians are part-time Jesus freaks. Of course, you can't be a part-time Jesus freak. They do love Jesus. They give him a portion of themselves, a portion of their time, a portion of their talent, a portion of their money, a portion of their service. Jesus Christ says in Matthew, love the Lord your God with your whole heart, with your whole mind, with your whole self. Lukewarm Christians love those who love them. It's easy to do. They strive to love others, but generally only those who show them love in return. They are quick to dismiss those they disagree with who hold opposing views. They are easily or easily are they easily, excuse me, hold grudges. They even may be sexist, racist, and sometimes they are downright cruel to others. Matthew 5 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Lukewarm Christians won't go too far. Lukewarm Christians seek to serve God with some of the things of their lives, but they limit how far they will go. The video we watched earlier shows that there was no limit to what that man was willing to do to experience the kingdom of God. Jesus says in Luke 18.21, to a rich man, yes, but to someone who asked him how to become one of his followers, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Lukewarm Christians are earthbound. They're focused on here and now and really not focused on what's to come. They're focused on their old lives, not their new life. Paul writes to the church in Colossae, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Lukewarm Christians are blessed. They feel blessed because of the comfort they have, the luxury they enjoy. Yet they rarely seek to give more or engage the poor and needy. Jesus says in Matthew 25, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you have done for me. Lukewarm Christians seek to be guilt-free. They do what's necessary to rid their lives of guilt, but they only do what's necessary. They do what's good enough. Not everything in their power to come in union with God. The parable of 
the hidden treasure goes like this. The kingdom of God is like a hidden treasure or a treasure hidden in a field. And the man in the story sells everything he has to live that life. Next, lukewarm Christians play it safe. They don't take risks and they're obsessed with keeping things under control. Is that any of us? Obsessed with keeping things under control? They don't want to sacrifice for their faith, and they're afraid of letting the Holy Spirit... Now, this is very true of the church, I believe, today. They are afraid of the Holy Spirit taking control of their lives. Because that's what God offers us. God offers us an advocate in the Holy Spirit who will just take control of us. And believe me, when that happens, sometimes you'll do things that might make you uncomfortable, like clap. We talked about that a little bit later. Oh, where was I? Matthew 10, Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Lukewarm Christians call themselves Christians. They call themselves Christ followers. They wear the badge and they believe maybe by going to church, by being baptized, by being confirmed, or by voting a certain way, or by living in a certain country, that they are going to be okay. Now hear these words from Jesus in the book of Matthew, chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's another one of those, wish, wish it wasn't in the Bible, but it is. The next one resonates with me. Lukewarm Christians have a plan. They don't need to trust God because they have savings and a pension and a retirement fund. They have emergency funds. I desperately try to have these things. It never seems, it never seems to work out. But what it's done for my wife and I has made us completely dependent on God and God's grace. And we can tell you stories after stories of God providing for us. Now, I'm not saying don't have a plan. <laughs> but Jesus says it like this. And I'm not wanting to argue with Jesus. Well, occasionally, but most of the time. Not. In Luke chapter 12, he gives us this parable. And he told them a parable. The land of a rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said to himself, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store up all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid upon you for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is he who lays treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Jesus wasn't kidding around when he talked about the relationship we should have with God. Finally, lukewarm Christians aren't really that different from everybody else. They may act nicer. They 
may drink a little less. They may not go out carousing as much. Is that, is that what we, do we use that word anymore, carousing? That was a different sermon series we preached a few months ago. They're really not that different from those people who aren't Christians. In fact, there are probably some non-Christians who act better than they do. I love this passage from Matthew 23. Jesus says, and he's talking about the Pharisees, they clean the outside of their cup and dish, but the inside is filled with greed and self-indulgence. The lukewarm Christian is concerned about what they look like and how they sound and how they act and how they appear, but they don't necessarily spend time on themselves, on their soul, on their relationship with Jesus Christ. Now this profile and these many scriptures isn't a guidebook for how to be Christian. It's not a list of things you should do to become a Christ follower. And it's not, hear me, a list of things to judge your friends by or other people by. It's a measuring stick for your own life with Christ. The Apostle Paul says it like this, examine yourself and see whether you are in faith. Test yourself. So what does God want? What does this God of the universe who just has a crazy love for each and every one of us, what does he want for us in our lives? Well, the only way we know that, I believe, is through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ makes it clear, God wants us all in all. He wants us completely. He wants us in everything that we do. Not a piece, not a portion, not our in. Uh, not just a little speck, but the entire package. We talk sometimes like, if I confess with my lips and I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, I'm saved, and then everything else is just icing on the cake. But what Francis Chan and what I believe Jesus Christ, more importantly, is challenging us to think about is maybe confessing with our lips and believing in our hearts is a little more detailed than our actions and our words. Maybe life in Christ is a little bit more than just something we say or we write or we do. Here's what Jesus says. If you love me, you will obey my commands, my commandments from the Gospel of John. James writes, and James is great. If you want to feel good about yourself, read James because he doesn't throw, he doesn't hold any punches, I should say. You believe there is one God. Good for you. Even demons believe that and shudder. Yeah. Like I said, James does not hold any punches. John, the, we believe, writer of the gospel writes in one of his letters and my, one of my favorite books of the Bible, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do as he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. That comes from 1 John. Here's what Jesus says. If anyone 
would come after me, if anyone would be my follower, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will find it for me. Comes from the book of Matthew. And finally, I want to leave you with this. And I think we read it before from the Gospel of Luke. Any of you who does not give up everything, he cannot be my disciple. God calls us to do some pretty crazy things. And God's love calls us to do some pretty crazy things and calls us to respond in a crazy way. But isn't God a God of mercy? Isn't there something called grace? We're Methodists and we talk about grace a lot. Grace is a good thing. Doesn't God forgive us when we fail? Isn't God's grace enough? We sing a song, your grace is enough. It is, certainly. We are saved by the grace of God. There's no disputing that. But lukewarm Christians take that grace for granted. They take it for granted. They don't take it to fully mean what it means. They don't hold it on their hearts. I want to give you an example, uh, a practical example. I think there's a little chart up on the, uh, yeah, here we go, a little chart up on the screen there. If 100 people represented the entire population of the world, all right, there's how many trillion of people in the world? If, uh, or billion, excuse me, people in the world. If the entire population was summarized by 100 people, 53 of them would live on less than $2 a day, which is roughly the cost of a snack-sized chicken McBites. And half the cost of Starbucks coffee. Or a third, I don't know. It's been a while. I'm on the, we're, we're on the budget plan, so I can't afford Starbucks. That means, <laughs> that means if you, yeah, I don't have a plan, so I'm pretty much out of luck <laughs> when it comes to that. Trusting God does not allow me to have coffee every day from Starbucks. That means if you make $4,000 a month, you make 100 times more than the average person on earth. Most of us make more than $2 a day. Most people in America, even the poorest of us in America, make more than $2 a day. Yet we constantly look to those who we call rich. We constantly consider ourselves poor. And that's a little bit about what lukewarm Christianity is. It's looking at that big picture and saying, I'm good enough, or yeah, there, you know, there are some people who are better off than me, but you know, I'm, I'm good where I am. I'm as close to Christ as I need. I'm where I need to be in my faith. God wants our very, very best. God demands our best. Jesus asks us for our best, but we're happy to serve God leftovers. We got some leftover green eggs and ham in the, in the freezer, so you can help yourself later. We're <laughs> Thank you, Jennifer. There are people on this earth, people in this country, even, even people in our community, without friends, without families, without homes, without cars, without a plan, 
who are able to praise God, who are able to follow His Son, Jesus Christ, who are able to experience life with God. Yet, we who do not think ourselves rich continue to put ourselves first and God second. Now, this is the sermon in the series that does not necessarily make you feel good, and I apologize for that. But sometimes we need to be challenged. Sometimes we need to think, am I truly living up to what Christ has in store for me? Am I truly experiencing new life as Christ offers? Am I living life with God? Am I living life with God? Am I fully experienced the life God has for us? Because, you know, think of your own life. Think of your people that you love. If you have children, you want the very best for them. If you have family and friends who you love, you want the very best for them. You don't want them to suffer. You don't want them to struggle. You don't want them to fail. You want to help them succeed and be their very best. And so too, God who loves us more perfectly than any human could wants us to live our very best. Be our very best. Be the best we can be and live in union with God. What does that love look like? What's it look like for you and me? What's it look like for God? Well, there's a passage you're most likely familiar with because we read it a lot at, uh, at wedding ceremonies. And it comes from the uh, letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and it's the 13th chapter. And it talks about love like this. This is Paul writing. And he says, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrong, but it rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. My version says, love never ends. Oh, I do not have this up here, do I? Other versions say, uh, love does not fail. As for prophecy, it will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For knowledge is imperfect and our prophecy is imperfect. But when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mere dimly. For then the face, or but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully understand, even as I have been fully understood. So faith, hope, love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, all the things I said today, the profile of the lukewarm, the pushing us to what Jesus said, looking at these things that Jesus said to say, what is expected of you? How should you respond to God's love? How should you live out new life in Jesus Christ? I think for us today, we can take this passage right here. This passage is so, so often used in weddings but it really doesn't have a lot to do with marriage. It has to do with God's love for us and our love for each other. And in that, it has to do with marriage, but not in particular. And so I want you to take this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through about 8, 
and I want you to do a substitute test. I want you to substitute the word love for your name. And this is a litmus test. You know, you can take all the things I said and say, okay, am I, am I really um, willing to give everything I have? And am I really serving the power? Am I really serving God with all of my talents, all of my time, everything I am? Just take this or use this as a first step. And I think I have an example. Yeah, example up there on the board. Go home and tonight read this passage in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty. Happy to give you one. And say Mark is patient. Mark is kind. Mark isn't jealous. Mark doesn't brag. Mark isn't arrogant some, some days. Mark isn't rude. Mark doesn't seek his own advantage. Mark isn't irritable. You can ask my wife about that. Mark doesn't keep a record of complaints. He isn't happy with injustice, but is happy with the truth. Mark puts up with all things, trusts in all things, hopes for all things, endures all things. Mark never fails. My challenge to you as we really begin this crazy love study really challenging ourselves to see what that love is like, what it really means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, what it really means to experience new love, new life in Jesus Christ, is to take a look at this passage, the passage we most of us know, we've heard many, many times. And instead of saying love, put your name in there. Instead of pretending like, okay, when I love, is my love patient? No. If I am patient, then I am experiencing God's love. If I am kind, then I am sharing God's love with those I'm kind to. Use that as your test, as Paul put it. Use that as your measuring stick. And think, am I truly living the life God has in store for me? Amen. Encourage the praise team to come up as we transition to the praise part of our service. I encourage you to just let the Holy Spirit take hold of you as we praise God together and raise your hands or clap or sing or dance, you know, whatever the Holy Spirit takes you to do. There will be no handling of snakes here tonight, but we can um, talk about that later, I guess, if you're so called. We'll do that some other time because my wife would not be here if there was snakes. Let us uh, enter a time of prayer and uh, the uh, ushers will come and uh, receive our offering as well. I want to thank all of you who have been supporting our ministry. It is so important in these early years that we are able to support the ministry uh, because uh, we, we don't have a tradition to build on. Uh, or, a, or a foundation. We don't have a plan, I guess, <laughs> when it comes to our ministry. We do have a plan, but we, we don't have a savings account, and we don't have a retirement fund uh, keeping us afloat. Um, in, in church life, that would be endowments and things like that. Uh, so we're starting from scratch, uh, and you're all starting with us, and so we thank you for uh, any way you can serve God in that wonderful ministry. Um, I did just learn that one of our uh, friends and one of our fellow worshipers and our brother, uh, Todd Hansel uh, was in the hospital uh, this week, and so 
uh, we want to lift up Todd and uh, just pray for him uh, and make sure that he is uh, back with us soon. Uh, so let us just join together in a moment of prayer as we remember those who aren't here, as we remember those who uh, need God's love and need to experience that love in a very real way. Let us pray. Lord of the heavens and the earth, God our Father, I ask that you be with us now, that you send your Spirit upon us, that you fill us with this crazy love that challenges us, that cause us to respond back to you. We ask that you be with all of those who need that love. We all need that love desperately. Help us want to desperately seek it in every day of our lives. But we ask that you be with those who are sick today. Be with those who need healing, heal them. Be with those who are alone, who are lost, help us find them. Be with those who are struggling, who have questions, who are in abusive relationships, who are in troubled houses. Help us reach out to them, minister to them in all that we do. Be with the leaders of this world, the leaders of this community, our men and women overseas and those at home serving us, those who serve us every day, those men and women who were out last night keeping our roads safe. Be with those who didn't make it home last night. Bring them close to you in your kingdom now. Most of all, we ask that you be with your bride, the church, that you lift her up, that you truly make her a light for all nations, that you help us in her shine, shine the love of Jesus Christ. Bring us close to you now as we praise your name. Bring us close to one another. In this we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.